All right, we're back with Jim Bayless, and Jim's going to talk to us a little bit about once he got from Texas, and he's in Washington now and working for John Tower. And tell us a little bit about what you did there, Jim. Well, my day job was as legislative counsel to Senator John Tower of Texas, uh, covering um, the Senate Finance Committee um, legislative activities, which is primarily translated as tax legislation. Uh, they have their, the jurisdiction of the committee is a little bit broader than that uh, to include international trade matters and what have you. But it's uh, the line share is tax, tax, and tax. Um, and then we also um, had a few other um, responsibilities, legislative responsibilities uh, outside the scope of the Senate Finance Committee. But I won't bore you with that uh, at this time. So one of the the, the premier um, matters that I happened to sink my teeth into uh, almost right off the bat as a 26-year-old new law grad in Washington was a piece of legislation that was extremely controversial at the time um, in during the Carter administration. Uh, this is in 1978, 79, um, uh, at a time when the Democrats were uh, in complete control of Washington. Uh, President Carter was in the White House. The Republicans, the, the Democrats had a commanding majority in the Senate uh, and an equally commanding uh, majority in the House of Representatives. So we Republicans uh, were like you know, the Texans at the Alamo in terms of influence. Um, we were uh, few and far between. Really? So, uh, so uh, in, in, at the time, um, there was an effort to go after big oil. And of course, nothing new about that. Uh, the energy industry is uh, Washington's favorite whipping boy. Uh, and they're always playing uh, defense against all sorts of regulatory and legislative assaults uh, to this day and, and always have been. So uh, fortunately, as I'll get into later, uh, whereas the controversy surrounding a lot of activities out of Washington today, here in 2019, often break down on strict party lines. You know, the Republicans are going to be unified in support of X or unified in the opposition to Y, and the Democrats are going to be unified on the other side. Um, that really pertains primarily to uh, social issues, but where you're talking about energy issues and specifically the notion of uh, slapping a windfall profits tax on uh, crude oil production, the breakdown is not going to be strictly on partisan lines, but rather on geographic lines because crude oil and natural gas occur in nature 
a little bit more frequently in certain parts of the country and less so in other parts. It's not like the oil and the natural gas are uh, evenly present from Seattle to Miami Beach. Oh, That's see. hardly the case. And so, so if you are a U.S. senator or a member of Congress from the so-called uh, oil-producing states, most uh, formidably uh, Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma, um, although obviously there are others, uh, Alaska and Alaska, you know, yeah. uh, you know, throughout the Rocky Mountain states, not everywhere, but uh, certainly California. Uh, if you are an elected official uh, from the oil-producing uh, regions of the country, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, by God, you're going to uh, defend your domestic industry. So uh, that was a godsend, that, that uh, deviation from today's uh, conventional wisdom that everything is either uh, Democrat or Republican uh, uh, without uh, any kind of... Um, you know, no traitors to the cause that everybody, each party is going to be unified. That is not so when you're dealing with, in this case, uh, a legislative package to impose, uh, you know, a pretty punitive uh, tax on uh, excess profits. And of course, excess profits, so-called windfall profits, that's a pretty subjective uh, phrase of art. Now, what's to, con- what's to constitute a windfall? Uh, define a windfall. Well, you can't do it. So in any case, huge Democratic majority um, in the U.S. Senate, which was my beat, and we were fighting an uphill uh, battle. Uh, There was strong headwinds, but fortunately, uh, tax legislation um, emanates from the Senate Finance Committee on the Senate side, and by luck of the draw, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee at the time was Russell Long, Democrat of Louisiana. Louisiana. And so he was a brilliant legislator. He also was uh, sharp as a tack and funny, very, very entertaining Hmm. uh, fella. Russell Long was the son of Huey Long, Governor you know, Governor Long of Louisiana, who was assassinated on the steps of the state capitol in Baton Rouge, yeah. uh, who was FDR's uh, you know, sworn rival uh, for uh, you know, that era. But in any case, uh, so John Tower, my boss, and the other senator from Texas, Lloyd Benson, a Democrat, and the two senators from Oklahoma, and the two senators from Louisiana, and Ted Stevens of Alaska, and certain other Republicans were absolutely dead set against the implementation um, and passage of a windfall profits tax. Uh, But notwithstanding our best efforts, uh, we uh, lost that legislative contest and the windfall profits tax was signed into law by Jimmy Carter. But philosophically, we had the last word because, uh, you know, as predicted, uh, you know, a handful of years later, the windfall profits tax, which, by the way, uh, to give the listeners a perspective, it was uh, the only legislative 
effort to take over uh, such a huge portion portion of the American economy as the windfall profits tax uh, did, the only effort that exceeded it in scope was that of Obamacare. So that's the kind of scale and scope of an incursion by Uncle Sam into the private economy. What, what so did it actually? Big deal. What did it actually mean, Jim? When you when you say the windfall profits tax, it just taxed the oil industry an extra percentage on being well, domestic it wasn't, it wasn't, produced. Or yeah, it wasn't. It's a very complicated formula, but to uh, at the risk of oversimplification, um, there are all sorts of different tiers of. Uh, production of crude oil and there was uh, a regulatory um, scale of taxation that was imposed depending on the type of crude oil uh, that it was it's hopelessly complex your listeners will uh, go into a coma if I were to explain <laughs> it all but but the, the bottom line uh, lesson the moral of the story uh, so to speak, this is sort of like Aesop's fables, <laughs> is that is that it was proven to yield um, nowhere near the federal revenues uh, that were projected. Uh, the whole point of this was basically to beat up on the oil industry, um, and because you know it was everybody's favorite whipping boy, you know, at least the Democrats uh, and the, the leftists' uh, favorite whipping boy, uh, just like it is today. Because they figured, hey, if the uh, if the market value of crude oil goes up, uh, you know those big fat cats in the oil industry are making you know too much money, and that's unfair. And it's unf- you know so it, it punishes the little guy in favor of the big guy. This is a typical populist kind of position that you see time and time and time again. Uh, so it's just demagoguery by the proponents. So so anyway. Um, Sure enough, the whole uh, uh, statutory scheme was uh, ended up being repealed uh, because it was a it was a colossal failure um, compared to uh, all of the federal uh, tax revenue windfalls that the uh, that the proponents had uh, uh, predicted. Because the point is, Gary, the Congress and certainly. In my opinion, the uh, Democrats and the Congress at any time, they want to expand government. So this was a classic opportunity to expand government. And you expand government by expanding uh, tax uh, revenues to the Treasury uh, so that it's more uh, money for members of Congress to play around with. More of your money, by the way. Uh, It's not their money, but they ended up getting it through all sorts of tax schemes. And this was uh, an enormous um, incursion into the private economy that would disadvantage uh, considerably the economies of uh, the oil producing states, uh, not the least of which is the state of Texas that my boss represented. So it was a it was a great object lesson uh, in terms of political philosophy uh, with real life uh, economic consequences to um, a pivotal uh, part of the country and a pivotal part of the national economy that keeps everything humming. 
But that's interesting because you answered my question. I was going to ask you what you personally learned out of that, and maybe you learned something that served you well into your next foray with, with Southwest. Well, exactly. So the other thing, and this is a totally different industry, but it's a, it's a great story um, with, a, with, with a similar kind of Aesop's fable uh, kind of lesson uh, of, of uh, the dangers of government uh, intrusion. And so here's the story. In, uh, so I was legislative counsel with John Tower. Uh, in comes um, to Senator Tower's office one day in November of 1979, a gentleman by the name of Herb Kelleher, who, uh, along with another fellow, had co-founded what was then a very little bitty startup airline, an intrastate commercial uh, carrier that uh, went between San Antonio, Houston, and Dallas, and it was called Southwest Airlines. And so Herb Kelleher, um, and his partner started this um, little bitty airline in 1972. And so it was very successful, but it was an intra-state carrier. It did not serve any place outside the state of Texas. So there were uh, additional airlines that happened to be headquartered in uh, Texas, uh, namely American Airlines, in Dallas, um, and Braniff Airways, now defunct Braniff Airways, um, and so those are all constituents of Senator John Tower, uh, and at the time, Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas. Tower was a Republican, Benson was uh, a Democrat. So when you're a senator from a given state, you're going to have uh, sort of a reflex uh tendency to want to defend and go to bat for a home state industry or a home state uh, company. Well, a lot of times it's not a clear-cut uh, choice just as to the uh, where the headquarters of a given company happen to be located because if you have multiple constituent companies, as was the case in Texas, uh, sometimes uh, there's going to be uh, intra-industry competition where the big airlines, in this case airline, uh, American and Braniff, uh, are going to try to crush upstart competitor Southwest Airlines in the crib. And so, huh. even so, so what happened was at the time there was a, the congressman from. Uh, Fort Worth was Jim Wright, and he happened to be the majority leader of the House of Representatives. He was a very, very powerful guy. And so Jim Wright represented, uh, in the terms of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, he represented American Airlines. He also represented DFW Airport, oh. which was brand new in 1972. And so the concern that Jim Wright and other proponents of uh, legislation that he proposed uh, was that, gosh, if if Southwest Airlines is allowed to serve Love Field in Dallas, which is the close-in, convenient airport, um, as opposed to the 
fairly new on the scene regional airport DFW, which is pretty far away from Dallas and Fort Worth. Gosh, that's going to threaten the ability to pay off those bonds that were issued to oh. build DFW Airport. Oh. And so, 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 gosh, that's unfair uh, for uh, Southwest to get to land and take off at the convenient airport, which the average consumer would prefer, uh, by and large. Um, and so, we should force Southwest Airlines to use DFW Airport and and uh, share the burden of paying off that bonded indebtedness. Well, that was a little bit of a shell game to the detriment of Southwest Airlines because it was an intrastate carrier. It, it, it's not within the jurisdiction, the regulatory jurisdiction of the Civil Aeronautics Board, which is a federal agency governing inter not intra, but inter-state commerce. And furthermore, the uh, contractual relationships that American Airlines and Brandt had with DFW didn't pertain to Southwest Airlines because they were not a party to any contract with DFW. Nonetheless, they were being forced to land and take off in the, at the remote airport. It was inconvenient. So if you're Southwest Airlines, you're saying like, this is a fine kettle of fish. You know, how in the world are we, you know, denied the the privilege of landing at the convenient airport? By the way, Southwest Airlines uh, was a godsend to the the business commuter between Houston and Dallas, for example. Uh, and the you know the businessmen who would go back and forth to Houston and Dallas, including my own father, uh, for example, uh, you know, didn't want to land you know, 20 miles away from downtown if they could land about three miles from downtown. So it was convenience and another classic example of federal intrusion. So Kirk Kelleher comes with hat in hand uh, uh, on bended knee to Senator Tower to ask his uh, assistance in trying to foil this bit of legislation that Jim Wright and others was proposing on the House side uh, that would have thrown a monkey wrench into Southwest's, uh, uh, you know, nascent existence. And so Tower, uh, again, somewhat conflicted because he, he didn't want to get, didn't, he didn't um, relish the thought of getting crosswise with some of the city fathers of Dallas and Fort Worth who happen to be close personal friends of his as well. Um, and he also represented American Airlines and Braniff. But by God, this was a, question of free enterprise uh, and free markets. And so being the conservative uh, ideologue that he was, he was going to remain true to his guns. And so um, that was the, the good news is that he was going to go to bat for Southwest on the Senate side um, to try to derail this legislation that had been born on the House side. So the way it unfolded, Tower was a little bit handicapped because he did not happen to serve on the relevant uh, Senate committee. Uh, he happened to be um, the ranking Republican, meaning the most senior Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, which is not germane to the matter at hand. Uh, the, the committee of jurisdiction on the Senate side that would uh, say grace over this matter once it came over uh, from the House would be the Senate Commerce Committee. Well, you know, blood is thicker than water, and 
Tower's mentor in the Senate was none other than Barry Goldwater from Arizona. Oh, my gosh. And so Goldwater was chairman of the full uh, he was not chairman yet he was uh, he was going to be chairman after Reagan was elected when the Republicans recaptured control of the Senate for the first time since 1954 but at the time Goldwater was the ranking Republican on the Senate Commerce Committee uh, so um, Tower buttonholed his mentor Barry Goldwater or who had been the Republican presidential candidate in 1964, a devout conservative, uh, to lend a hand. And so Barry Goldwater says, yes, I will happily help. And specifically, I'm going to ask my colleague, Senator Robert Packwood from Oregon, who is the ranking Republican on the relevant subcommittee of the Senate Commerce Committee, to go to bat for Southwest Airlines. So in the uh, classic instance of luck of the draw, uh, Bob Packwood from Oregon, uh, you know, was going to bat for uh, Herb Kelleher, uh, you know, CEO of Southwest Airlines of Texas. And of course, optically, this made no sense to anybody as to why a senator from Oregon with no dog in the fight, uh, a state where Southwest Airlines did not serve at the time, would be bending over backwards to accommodate Herb Kelleher uh, of, of Texas, uh, dealing with an intra-state carrier matter in the commercial uh, airline business. Well, in, in, the, in the small world department, Bob Packwood and Herb Kelleher were already buddies. They were <laughs> law school classmates at NYU, so they didn't need any introduction personally. But Packwood, fortunately, was just as free market oriented as John Tower and Mary Goldwater were. And uh, when the legislation emerged from the Senate, uh, excuse me, emerged from the House, it was a bill that the Senate already passed. And so suddenly the venue for, um, uh, you know, fisticuffs was in the Senate at the House Senate Conference Committee. And Atwood uh, was there and basically chewed up Jim Wright and spit him out. And the resulting uh, legislation that was ultimately enacted uh, ended up um, rounding the edges. It didn't kill the bill outright, but it allowed uh, Southwest Airlines to survive. And this was in 1979, and Southwest Airlines today is one of the most formidable, financially successful, incredibly popular interstate airlines on the globe. And so, but for Herb Kelleher walking into John Tower's office in the Senate in 1979, we wouldn't have Southwest Airlines today. It that, is a remarkable. That's amazing. Story. That's amazing how the little how it all works around like Packwood and them. And I remember, I think I remember reading where Wright wasn't even supposed to be in that meeting. He like just Correct. usurped yeah, he himself was, he, he into the meeting. Yeah, he insinuated himself into the conference committee uh, uh-huh. deliberations because he huh. was the majority leader. But that was, you know, that was uh, not uh, unusual for Jim Wright. He was, uh, he was, a, he was a captivating speaker. He was uh, shrewd as he could be. He was a very, very smart uh, guy. He was a brilliant legislator. Um, but this was his baby. And so he insinuated himself into the into the deliberations and to witness uh, Bob Packwood uh, basically doing 
legislative jujitsu, uh, it was something to behold. And and uh, Jim Wright was was flummoxed. Uh, so Herb Kelleher uh, lived to fight another day. And God bless Herb Kelleher, who uh, sadly passed away on January the third, twenty nineteen. But what? an impact he has had on the American economy. Yeah, that's that that's a real success story. I'm trying to think, Jim, was there, I, w- I remember flying intrastate in Texas back in the 70s. Was there another airlines called Texas Airlines? Or am I... There was, tra- there was Trans-Texas Airways, TTA, known as, and, and it, derisively it was known as, uh, Treetop Airways and, <laughs> and, and teeter-totter Airways. <laughs> but you're right. And TTA, Trans-Texas, ended up becoming Continental Airlines, oh. which, of course, uh, has since been subsumed into United Airlines. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of... Um, there are a lot of stages in the uh, evolution of uh, commercial uh, air transportation as well, corporately. Yeah. Hey, well, Jim, one other guy that I wanted to ask you about because he's such an integral part of your life and and actually uh, probably a, a great advantage for the president later on is your friend from Houston, David Bates. Yes, David Bates um, and our blood brothers and have been since we were about eight or nine years old. Um, again, this will sound like a broken record, but where else but uh, tennis? Uh, we both know. we both were, you know, burr haircut, butt teeth, knock kneed little tennis players on the red clay courts of Houston, Texas, as little tykes. And we would play sandlot baseball together and what have you. We went to different uh, elementary schools, but uh, we were uh, buddies through thick and thin. And David was uh, remarkable as he was the, was and is to this day, the uh, most polite, gracious, well-mannered young boy. Um, the same thing can be said about him today at age uh, 67. Um, although he probably would consider a to be called a, a boy today. <laughs> so David, David was the, was the apple of the eye of all of our parents, which is instructive um, to paint the portrait that uh, I'm going to paint about David. So, as I mentioned earlier, one of uh, our not whole gang playing tennis and sandlot baseball was a fellow named Jet Bush. And so we were with each other all the time, uh, playing tennis, playing baseball in the Bush's backyard and what have you. Um, and Mr. Bush and Mrs. Bush, George and Barbara Bush, just like all the other parents of us running those kids, um, immediately took uh, an instant liking to young David Bates, who was so proper, so gracious, so well-mannered, so well brought up. You know, he made us all look bad all the time. Um, all of us other kids and, you know when of course it's a uh, common uh, custom among kids you know you spend the night over at uh, your buddy's house on friday night or saturday night well david whenever he would spend the night over at my house when we were 
you know, 10 or 11 years old, um, you know, by Monday, there was already a handwritten thank you note in my parents' mailbox from David. <laughs> so, so you know, he, he raised the bar on all the rest of us kids. Um, and so um, how does that manifest itself into what David became, you know, professionally? Well, David went to the University of Texas as an undergraduate. Uh, he and I were in school together uh, there. And then uh, we both went to law school, different law schools. Um, but um, he was a law student at the University of Houston. And we played tennis from, from time to time with George H.W. Bush. And this is in the late 70s. And the remarkable story is this. He was um, finished his third year, third his last year of law school, and he was going to be studying for the bar exam that summer. And he had agreed to uh, take a job um, soon after Labor Day with a law firm in Houston that happened to be his, his brother-in-law's law firm. And he was playing tennis uh, at the Houston Country Club one afternoon in the middle of the summer with Mr. Bush. And Mr. Bush um, buttonholed David and said, now, David, I'm going to run for the presidency of the United States. And I'm going to need, it's going to entail a lot of travel because, uh, you know, not everybody, people in Houston, Texas know me, but the rest of the country, they don't know me. And I'm going to have to have somebody trustworthy as my right hand to go with me all the time. You know, flying all around the early primary states of New Hampshire and the caucus, you know, state of Iowa and wow. all around. And I would like for that young man to be you. And again, Mr. Bush's logic was David Bates has never dropped a stitch. He's completely organized. He is gracious. He's just the kind of guy uh, you want to have at your right hand. And so David was completely flummoxed because... Remember, David is the world's most proper individual. He had promised his brother-in-law uh, and his brother-in-law's firm that he would begin work uh, after he finished the bar exam uh, after Labor Day that that uh, year. And yet, he was devoted to Mr. Bush. We all adored Mr. Bush, and he wanted to please Mr. Bush, but there was a giant conflict. And so he said, well, you know, Mr. Bush, I, you know, I'm... I'm completely flattered and, and undone by the generosity of your offer. But he explained the situation and uh, said, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do. And Mr. Bush, uh, you know, was unfazed by this. And he said, now, David, why don't we try this? Why don't you ask the law firm if you can move your starting date to Thanksgiving rather than after Labor Day? and come to work for me and travel with me. And frankly, I don't think my campaign is gonna go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder so, if he knew, I wonder if he knew in the back of his mind that that wasn't exactly what he thought. Well, so, so the, here you have George H.W. Bush, That's candidate funny. for the presidency, beginning in 1978, revving up his campaign. The 1980, campaign for the presidency on the Republican side was a long list. Ronald Reagan, Howard Baker, John Connolly, 
governor of Texas previously, George H.W. Bush, uh, John Anderson. It went on and on and on oh, and on. Oh, yeah, that's right. And you, you just have, you, you people forget how many Republican candidates there were. And there, today, were some other, there were some others at the time that were added on exactly. to that. Exactly. I mean, I mean, today you're looking at the Democratic uh, uh, you know, cattle show of Democratic candidates for president, and you can't even, you can't recite them all. There's so many, you know, 20 plus. And so, so here you have this situation, Mr. Bush saying, you know, I got to go for it. You know, I, I have to go for it. I, frankly, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but I got to go for it. And David Bates, you know, sort of going along for the ride. Um, and with the security of knowing that he has a real job uh, when he gets back, you know, in a few months. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? what? George Bush upsets Ronald Reagan in the Iowa caucus in You're 1980. You're And he loses to New Hampshire. He loses to Reagan in New Hampshire. Nonetheless, he makes a, 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 a very tight, competitive race of it. Reagan taps Mr. Bush to be his vice presidential running mate. They win. Mr. Bush is vice president of the United States for eight years. He's president of the United States for four. And David Bates is with him forever throughout the entire Washington. Is that right? And, and culminating, David was was secretary to the cabinet in the Bush White House, following a number of jobs through the Reagan years. And when he arrived in Washington, um, I'd already been there about three and a half years at that point. So. David and his wife Ann and their cat arrived, and where did they live? But in the same house where I was living. How bad? And so, and so, blood is thicker than water. And if there's, you know, a tennis ball can uh, that contains that uh, thick blood, then that's all the better. And so, David and I uh, were inseparable through those twelve years uh, is that, that he was right? in Washington. Is and, that right? Uh, and then he, wow. he and I were business. He and I were business partners uh, in Washington. We had a we had our firm together uh, until he moved back to uh, Texas in 1993. Well, I bet so, he didn't get to play much tennis when he was in those 12 years with with Mr. Well, Bush. Or am I wrong? Well, David and I somehow made the cut more than a few times for tennis with Mr. Bush when he was vice president, and then when he was president. So we were on speed dial. For those early morning, uh, you know, oh. Saturday and Sunday morning, oh, is that right? Uh, doubles matches. Oh yeah, boy. Now who would so so that'd be interesting because I guess uh, there'd be the three of you and then there'd be a fourth guest each time, huh? Yes, exactly. And a lot, and a lot of times it'd be Doran Smith, my original uh, godfather, big brother. Oh, is friend. that right? Um, and so when when Mr. Bush and David would be traveling uh, through the campaign years in 78, 79, they would make Washington as sort of their their weekend uh, uh, base. And so whenever they would arrive into town for the weekend, uh, sure enough, almost without exception, we'd get a call from oh. David to say, you yes. know, we're, you know, we're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to be at Dean Birch's house uh, at the court in his backyard at four o'clock. So he would be Mr. Bush and David uh, against Norris and me. And so, so it was a wow. long week. We might as well have been at the Houston Country Club for all we knew. And here <laughs> we are in Potomac, Maryland on somebody's backyard court. You know, so, I'm sure you know, that was a great uh, stress reliever for President Bush, you know, to just play well, tennis exactly. with you guys and get exercise. Exactly. You know? That's exactly right. Well, he was, he, Mr. Bush uh, idled at a very high rate of speed um, and, <laughs> at, his, at his funeral when, 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 
his son George W. was giving uh, a eulogy for his dad um, last December. Um, I remember George W. saying that dad had two speeds, full throttle and asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if, if they weren't every single day, if, if uh, David and his, excuse me, if Mr. Bush and his travel aide to camp, David Q. Bates, uh, if, if they didn't have time to, uh, you know, play tennis or didn't have the opportunity to play tennis, they'd be out there, you know, at the end of the day, um, trying to rejuvenate themselves after an exhausting day on the campaign trail, and they'd be uh, running a few miles or something. Because Mr. Bush just had to have that fix of exercise every single day. Is that right? So tennis was real, I mean, a real big part of his life then, wasn't it? Oh, boy. No kidding. And, of course, he was a great athlete. I mean, he was a great baseball player, played first base for Yale, and he was uh, he was a sportsaholic. What was his best shot? I know you like he liked to serve and volley, and, and of course, you know some guys in the day were more aggressive than others. Even though most people were more aggressive, but did he did he have a pretty good first serve, or what, what about his <laughs> well, game? I'll tell you. So he would hit a pretty soft first serve and barrel into the net without fail. <laughs> and he, he he loved he loved the the uh, the quick hands of the good serving. volleys. Huh? I mean, excuse me, the volleying and the overheads. But his, uh, he had funny vernacular for uh, the different shots. And whenever he would um, hit, he, he referred, he, he, he mimicked John Newcomb. Uh, he was very close personal friends with John Newcomb and also with, with Roach. And he loved the Aussies. And, uh, of course, when he was vice president, he uh, had a, an official trip in Australia. And uh, sure enough, Mr. Bush and David played doubles with Newcomb and Roach. Is um, that right? Down under. Um, and when Mr. Bush was inaugurated, he, um, Mr. Bush invited two Australians to the inauguration. Uh, one of them was the ambassador of Australia to the United States, and the other was John Newcomb. How about that? <laughs> and so, 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 uh, so, Back to the shot. So he 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 referred to Mr. Bush referred to his forehand um, by what Newcomb referred to his forehand. He called he called it unleashing Chang. He says that whenever he would want to go for a forehand winner, it would be unleash Chang. And then whenever he would hit a drop shot, if he did it just so with great finesse. He would call it a falling leaf. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So anyway, he was he was uh, he, he he was always chattering, uh, and he'd always talk about. Here's another funny story about Mr. Bush. The world's most competitive human being, uh, playfully competitive, I should say, and he'd always refer to this mysterious, uh, fictitious um, uh, group called the ranking committee and of course nobody knew who in the world uh comprised the so-called ranking committee but he would always invoke the ranking committee um and so if you lost um uh then you know the ranking committee this this amorphous ranking committee would uh <laughs> would, would uh, hold you responsible in the in the next uh set of rankings that came out you know and so he, he was he he always had you know, a, a gift of gab, and, and uh, he was very, very funny uh, when it came to 
tennis. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, you, you, you and I know as tennis players, when you play doubles with somebody on the same team, you re- it's really interesting to see the dialogue that you have between each other. So uh, exactly. I'll bet when you guys were playing together that you all had the most hilarious way of putting him at ease or, you know, it must have, oh, been, it must have been hilarious what no, you all would say just, back and hilarious. forth. It was just hilarious. I mean, we would talk in, in uh, you know, in, in sort of our own little code and, and shorthand, and it would, you know, it would, it would speak volumes. So, but you're right. I mean, he, he it was like, uh, it was like, uh, you know, the, the Navajo code breakers in World War Two. <laughs> well, I nobody, tell you. nobody in the world would understand what we were what we were <laughs> meeting by our vernacular, but it was you know very very funny. And and to your point, it was very relaxing to him uh, just to uh, remove himself psychologically from you know the just the, the drudgery and fatigue of the campaign trail. So you, that's interesting, and we're going to talk in the future about, uh, you know, later when he was president and, and some of those things, but uh, it's it's interesting to note when famous people like that that are politicians that uh, we will never know, but but you knew that they're, they're actually people, and, you know, they have this personality, and, and he did. Exactly. He, just, he just had a, a, a large sense of humor. I, I saw him one time, I didn't get to meet him, but he came to our country club in Lexington and played with uh, Will Farish, who I'm sure you know. And yes. they, he was he was coming in off of, I remember he was coming in off of uh, the last hole, and and he had one of those long belly putters, and, and, yeah, he, right. and he had a, had a uh, you know, the armband that us tennis elbow guys had sometime in our career, and it was, it, he was so gracious taking pictures with a couple of the members that came up like that. And well, was, he, he, he was pure class. He was. You know, of, the, yeah. of the many, of the many um, nouns uh, that come to mind in describing uh, George H.W. Bush, two of the foremost would be uh, humor and humility. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that, and and you you've kind of you've kind of got that same type of demeanor. Well, thank you. I hope Just so. probably we all huh? we all we all try to uh, uh, mimic as best we can George and Barbara Bush because they were role models without peer to us. Well, they they were they they were quite a class among themselves. Well, James, thanks again. It's been great fun listening to you and let's tee it up and talk again uh you know later down later down the road in the uh in in your uh occupation and then how you kept intertwining with tennis and um and some more of this presidential i guess before we go i'll ask you because i know that he was great friends with pam shriver too i guess she was on the court with you a time or two wasn't she uh yes she was uh pal of Mr. Bush's, um, but probably among all of the um, lady champions over the years, I would have to say that Chrissy Everett was, um, you know, one of his absolute favorites. Oh, his favorite. Did she come up and play with him some? Yes, and um, and of course, it wasn't confined to the distaff side of the ledger. I mean, he, uh, he, and, he and Agassi, um, 
visit at Camp David um, uh, and Lindell. I remember uh, Lindell being at the Naval Observatory when Mr. Bush was vice president. Uh, Boris Becker was um, played at the White House court. Oh, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I believe I believe that I saw in one of the pictures of my own personal book that you uh, autographed for me and said a nice thing in there that uh, there was a picture of you and Bjorn Borg at the White House saying that you all were undefeated in doubles. Is there any truth to that? We remain undefeated. Um, and, um, you know, 1-0 is, uh, is something to take to the bank. Who'd you guys play? Who'd you guys play against? Anybody? Anybody of note? Others. It was a fantastic uh, couple of days of tennis with the Swedes, uh, thanks to Scandinavian Airlines. Right. Which, uh, was a client uh, subsequently of mine and David Bates's, and uh, uh, we entertained the, the Swedes in Washington uh, and in New York, both. But Joachim uh, uh, Nystrom, uh, Borg. Edberg, Tomas Inkvist, mm. Pim oh. Pim Johansson, and oh, great you know, all, all these great Swedes. So it was it was wonderful memories, thanks to the largesse and hospitality of President George H. W. Bush. Well, we're going to talk again. We're going to. I'm going to ask you about this picture. I always, I, you know, Jim Jim always has one up on me because he knows everybody. But there's one guy that I got to know in Austin before I left there, and he was a famous musician in, in Texas, Jerry Jeff Walker, who wrote Mr. Bojangles, and I said, well, Jim may have played tennis at the White House with the Bushes, but I know Jerry Jeff Walker, and as I read his book, I'm, I'm leafing through the pictures, because I always read the pictures first in a book, and there he is giving a tennis lesson to Jerry Jeff Walker. And so I said, well, I guess I'm a complete failure. But uh, surely that was, it, it looked It looked to me in this picture like my uh, my Viva Terlingua friend did not even have a shirt on and you were giving him a tennis lesson somewhere. So. Jerry, Jerry Jeff would um, perform at a, suburban Washington from time to time called the Birchmere and and by chance he was big buddies with um, a lawyer uh, whom I worked with the same law firm and Jerry Jeff would uh, whenever he came to Washington he would stay with uh, our mutual friend Mark Goldberg in Great Falls Virginia and so Mark had a tennis court in his backyard and he called me and he says I got a house guest that uh, wants to uh, play tennis and you know so I'm calling you to give him a lesson so come on over so I, he lived just a few minutes away so I go over there and the surprise house guest was Jerry Jeff Walker <laughs> my fellow Texan and that's so, right so uh, Jerry Jeff it was hot as hell it was July it was uh, humid and, you know a horrible day and so Jerry Jeff stumbles out on the court he was uh, you know wearing uh you know, some sort of, um, you know, clam digger, uh, you know, half pants. Yeah, like, it looks like knickers like, like, or like, something. Like, like, like Nadal used to do. That's right. Years. That's right. And, uh, and, and a Hawaiian shirt and and uh, and, and barefoot on the hard courts. <laughs> and, of course, uh, you know, he was quite fragrant because you could smell all the 
shoes on his breath. And this was, you know, like at two o'clock in the afternoon. But, uh, you know, that's your Jeff. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, and so and then the funny uh, other bookend to that is uh, just a few months ago, uh, my wife and I, following uh, dinner uh, out one night, we went by this uh, fun bar uh, for a nightcap. And sure enough, who's on the next stool uh, sitting there having a pop? Uh, with his dog on a leash tied to the stool, the Jerry Jeff Walker. Oh so, my God! So, so, so whether it be in Great Falls, Virginia, or Austin, Texas, you know you can count on Jerry Jeff being on really? the scene. Where where was that, Jim? Where'd y'all go? Don's Depot, which is uh, you know one of the many fun bars in. Is that down on? Is that down? That's not down on Sixth Street, is it? No, it's on Fifth, though. Oh, it's down. <laughs> it's not too far. <laughs> James, thanks for your time tonight. Let's talk Thank you, again. Sir. Okay, bye bye. Take care.